0: Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Support for this show comes from Inner Engineering, a program to empower every human being with the tools for well-being from the distilled essence of yogic sciences. Visit www.innerengineering.com to learn more.
1: From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is David Loy, a professor of Buddhist and comparative philosophy, whose writing appears in a host of magazines, including Tricycle and Turning Wheel Shambhala Sun, which I think is now called Lion's Roar, and Buddha Dharma Magazine. His latest book is A New Buddhist Path, Enlightenment, Evolution, and Ethics in a Modern World. An interview with David appears in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health Magazine. David Loy, welcome to Essential Conversations.
2: Thank you very much. I'm I'm delighted to have this conversation with you.
1: Well, I am very excited about talking with you. You have been a man, not, not that we've ever met or that you have any idea of who I am, but through your books, you have really been one of my major teachers. And I'm very, very honored to be able to have a Q&A session with you, essentially.
2: Thank you for that.
1: So you open your newest book, New Buddhist Path, Enlightenment, Evolution, and Ethics in a Modern World. You open it up by saying... And this is a a short quote. As Buddhism spreads to the West, and then you say, or to the modern world, since the West is globalizing, Buddhism is encountering its greatest challenge ever. The most successful civilization in human history, whose powerful technologies and formidable institutions offer apparently limitless possibilities, along with unprecedented perils. So I understand that the West offers limited possibilities and unprecedented perils, but why is this Buddhism's greatest challenge? What do you have in mind?
2: Well, as you know, Rami, uh, Buddhism is a missionary religion, but uh, historically it spread in a rather interesting way. It it didn't try to impose itself on new cultures, but when it went to somewhere new like China, for example, it, it interacted with the local spiritual traditions and out of that interaction, you know, so, something new was created. Uh, and, and I think this is very much uh, in line with Buddhism's own emphasis on impermanence and insubstantiality, which applies to itself. And, but when you think about Asian Buddhism or Asian Buddhisms, all of the cultures that it spread to were pre-modern. And in that sense, they were, you know, obviously quite different. There's a big difference between South Asia and East Asia. But nonetheless, the modern world, uh, secularized, uh, materialistic, uh, reductionistic in its science, is is, is quite different than anything Buddhism has ever encountered before, and therefore poses a completely different type of challenge there.
1: So can you imagine... What might, and I'm sort of asking you to look into a crystal ball, to mm-hmm. imagine what might emerge out of this dialogue between uh, Buddhism and secularism, and, and I mean, science, humanism, consumerism, mm-hmm. I mean, the whole American or Western <laughs> right. civilization. Do, do you, yeah, what What do you mm-hmm. see coming mm-hmm. out of that?
2: Well, I I think so far, probably the most important interaction is psych- with, with Western psychology, Uh, And of course, there's been uh, a lot of uh, interest in in brain studies showing how meditation changes the way the brain works and and so forth. But even more so, I think, uh, Western psychotherapy. So to the point where we now have quite a few therapists who are not only Buddhist practitioners, but some of them uh, are even authorized Buddhist teachers. And they often incorporate some Buddhist techniques in their own practice. I think that's the main interaction so far, rather than with something like Judeo-Christianity. The other thing that I think is, is already becoming very important is socially engaged Buddhism. Um, within Asia, you know, Buddhism had to be somewhat careful. None of the Asian Buddhist societies uh, were was democratic, and Buddhism uh, was thereby limited in terms of what it, it could promote. Uh, it, it had to be very careful. Uh, Certainly in its early days, uh, if the uh, king or ruler didn't like what you were getting up to, it, it could squash you. So Buddhism did come to a kind of accommodation with the state in, in, in most places it spread to. But now that Buddhism comes to the West, I think we can see new possibilities. And in particular, expanding the, the perspective on dukkha. By dukkha, I'm talking about the the word that's usually translated into English as suffering, uh, which has always been the concern of Buddhism. As the Buddha said, he he's all about understanding and putting an end to dukkha. That's basically what he taught. And I think now in the modern world, we certainly have our own types of dukkha, uh, but also we can see the ways in which they've been institutionalized. And all of this is a long way of saying that I think um, – Buddhism is developing a kind of social engagement and a a critique that wasn't possible in the Asian traditions, but I think it's now not only possible, but happening. And that includes things like uh, what's now called eco-dharma or Buddhist uh, ways of understanding and responding to the ecological crisis. So, so far, I think those are the two main things. But the other thing I want to mention briefly is... uh, now that Buddhism comes to the modern world, well, in the modern world, you know, we're so much aware, not only of other types of Buddhism, so that there's this constant dialogue going on, but also other spiritual traditions. And I think this is the real task for all religion in the contemporary world. You could say the growing tip for all religious traditions is other spiritual traditions. And uh, uh, I think that's the real task that Buddhism, like like other has is is faced with is sort of using that in a positive way, because I think that can help us to distinguish, for example, what's essential in Buddhist teachings from what's historically and culturally conditioned. And therefore, you know, we can let go of in the modern world. And I think that, that, that ability or that, um, Challenge of, of distinguishing is is going to be really important in in a modern world that does need spirituality, but it, it, it seems to need a a different type so than I, the traditional ones. Yeah,
1: you know, one thing that comes to mind is the work of Stephen Bachelor, You know, Buddhism mm-hmm. without beliefs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Buddhist, I don't know if it's atheist Buddhism or Buddhist atheism, since Mm -hmm. Buddhism really doesn't have a creator God. I don't know how they're exactly atheist, but uh, the word seems a little redundant. Mm -hmm. So, so this, this may be happening. It sounds like uh, to some extent this, this kind of thing is emerging, but I'm interested Mm -hmm. uh, not only in that and the reaction to that, but your notion of the, the institutionalized suffering Mm. that Buddhism can confront um, can you, and, and you mentioned the environmental movement, but give us a couple of you know, at least one other example of this institutionalized suffering and how Buddhism might address that?
2: Sure. Well, um, in, in traditional Buddhism, there's a lot of emphasis placed on what's sometimes called the three poisons, or the three fires or the three roots of evil. I mean, the Buddha didn't really talk about evil. It, the whole issue of good versus evil is, is more uh, Abrahamic concept than Buddhism, where the important distinction is, is delusion versus wisdom or ignorance versus uh, awakening. But insofar as there's problems, you know, Buddha, the Buddhist traditions t- tend to trace them back to these three poisons, which are usually translated as greed, um, anger, hatred, or as I prefer, ill will. So greed, ill will, and uh, delusion. And what I think we can see in the modern world is that we face a situation that that the Buddha didn't, that in a way we've really institutionalized them. And and, and I think this is important because it gives us a kind of Buddhist critique of where things are going wrong now. The way I see it, uh, our economic system is institutionalized greed in the sense that if greed means you never have enough, you always want more. Well, I think that describes consumerism and sort of corporate capitalism pretty well. Uh, Profits are never high enough. Uh, Stock prices are never high enough. Uh, Collectively, GNP, GDP is never enough. But from a Buddhist perspective, there's this question, why is more and more always better if it can never be enough? Um, So I think that's one example. I think uh, we have another example, uh, a very good example of institutionalized uh, ill will would be our militarism. And something else that's pretty predominant lately is is what we see going on with police uh, and, and shooting, killing black people. That's pretty appalling. And, you know, that's not going on in other developed nations. So, so what's happening there? And then finally, I think we've institutionalized delusion in the sense that the major media um, are – Mega corporations, for the most part, in the last generation, they've been reduced to like six mega corporations that pretty well control what people are exposed to, and they're not really interested in educating or informing us because they make their money from capitalism. So they're concerned to um, emphasize uh, advertising and and consumerism rather than asking the deeper questions about where a consumer society is is taking us so from that perspective i think the we can talk about these institutions as uh complicit in creating what might be called institutionalized dukkha uh, it's not simply a matter like in traditional buddhism where my dukkha my suffering is understood to be completely due to my own karma my own actions and past lifetimes but rather i think in the modern world we're we're so aware of, of of the way institutions work and how they create suffering. And I think it's important that Buddhist teachings be extended in this direction to uh, bring a Buddhist perspective to bear.
0: Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th.
1: that that's very interesting i'm wondering if you see a connection between this i mean consumerism capitalism it, it understood as you said you know institutionalized greed it seems to me that's a great uh you know way of translating the second noble truth you know trishna this addictive mm. desire which right. is the cause of suffering and so, now you're saying buddhism is the is a way the third noble truth to end this suffering i'm i'm looking at or thinking about uh Gakai as a contemporary Buddhist, contemporary expression of Buddhism, which, and I'm not an expert in this by any means, you're you're the professor of this stuff, but it seems to be very materialist. People chant Nyomyo Renge Kyoho for a new car, for a better job, for mm-hmm. more money. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that's one way Buddhism has been co-opted. I mean, it seems that that every time something comes up against capitalism, capitalism wins.
2: <laughs> um I, th- I think you're exactly right about Soka Gakkai, although, I, I mean, to, to defend them a little bit, I think there's a little more involved there. I, I think it often uses the idea of chanting in order to get what you want as a way to get people involved. I think often, or ideally, you know that, that can move beyond that kind of materialistic, satisfying desires, and, and in the practice, maybe lead one to, to deeper places. Uh, but the truth is I'm far from an expert on Soka Gakkai, and it's interesting that, uh, you know, within the most of the convert community, that's not one of the major forms of Buddhism, to be honest, even though it's done a really good job of uh, attracting a lot of practitioners. Um, but, but it's not as well known, at, you know, I mean, if you read Tricycle or Lion's Roar or Buddha Dharma, you don't hear a lot about Soka Gakkai. It, it, it's interesting. It's it's a bit marginal, and I think for exactly that reason, uh, a lot of uh, American or contemporary Buddhists are a little wary of, about this sort of approach.
1: Somebody just wrote a, a recent book about it. Of course, now I can, I'm blanking on there on who did it. But all right, so let's let's not go there. Um, Last thing, just on, on a contemporary thing, and then I want to get on to something a little more philosophical, is what's happening in, in like, Myanmar, mm-hmm. where you have Buddhists, um, and often led by Buddhist priests, you know, acting against, doing, committing violence against Muslims. So, so they're, being Buddhist is no guarantee that you're not going to fall into the same trap mm-hmm. of institutionalized hatred as as anyone else.
2: Yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not only in the case of Myanmar, Burma, uh, but, you know, you can look at what happened in Sri Lanka with the uh, Tamil revolt and the very brutal way in which that was put down. You could look at the history of Japan and in particular the 20th century, the, the support of most Buddhist institutions for, you know, Japanese militarism. In, in all those cases, what seems to have happened is somehow... Buddhism gets associated with ethnicity and nationalism. And, and to that degree, it, it it can be as co-opted as any other kind of tradition. However, I do feel, you know, that that's not the best of the tradition. Because if we really understand what the Buddha was talking about, I think we wouldn't make those discriminations between us, the good Buddhists, and those other people, the Tamils or the Muslims or whatever, who are different from us and therefore deserve to be defeated or destroyed in some way.
1: Right, right, right. Good point. So let me, let me just clarify what I said a moment ago. It was my, my friend Clark Strand wrote the book, so I have to apologize to Clark. So the, the book I was referring to is called Waking the Buddha, How the Ooh. Most Dynamic and Empowering Buddhist Movement in History is Changing Our Concept of Religion. Mm. And it's uh, soga Gakkai is is what he's writing about. Mm. So now I've got that off my chest. <laughs> I didn't want to, didn't want to, uh, you know, disrespect him. One of the most interesting things that I came across in the book is this statement, and this is a quote: "One of the critical issues for contemporary Buddhism is enlightenment." Mm. So. I mean, I, right away, all kinds of things popped into my mind, mind. But, but I don't want to take up the time. I'm asking you, why? Why is that the case? Why do you see that one of the most critical issues in contemporary Buddhism is enlightenment?
2: Well, one big issue is is how do we understand enlightenment today? I mean, clearly, it's it's essential to early Buddhism and indeed to to all the the, the Asian Buddhist traditions in in one form or the other, but if you go back to the earliest uh, forms of buddhism say the pali canon the the earliest teachings in theravada buddhism it's it tends to be understood as as a kind of escape from this world the ultimate meaning of nibbana is to uh, not not to be reborn because there's a sort of implicit understanding that this world is the world of uh, suffering craving delusion and you just want to check out of it so but now in the modern world where we tend to be a lot more skeptical of these sort of transcendental solutions or higher worlds that we want to go to. Uh, What does that mean for how we understand enlightenment? Um, I think largely in response to that, what's happened with a lot of Western or contemporary Buddhism is, is, is a kind of psychologization so that Buddhism is understood about sort of a way to understand and deal with your own um, neuroses, your own emotional hangups and so forth. And if we can just resolve those, then we'll be able to harmonize and fit better into the world. Um, What what concerns me, frankly, is that both of those, uh, although they're in one way diametric opposites, both of them encourage a kind of indifference to what's actually happening socially, institutionally. Both of them sort of turn their backs on the the social, ecological, economic problems that face us. Whereas I think if we understand enlightenment as, how to put it, the Buddhist path is about deconstructing and reconstructing how we experience the world and how we experience ourselves. And if we understand it in that way, then we can see how our own personal reconstruction is really not separate from the larger social one. And, and so I would suggest that enlightenment it is important, but it's important to be understood in this kind of alternative sort of way.
1: Well, when we look at enlightenment as either, you know, in earlier in Buddhist history as some way of sort of escaping mm. th- this world or in the contemporary way of, of, it's almost a kind of narcissism. It's all about stress reduction and, right. and you know, making me healthier and happier and all right. that. Uh, we, we lose I I mean, I don't know. I don't want to get lost in the weeds here. But we lose the sort of the the Mahayana idea of the Bodhisattva, the person who is really devoted to the well-being of others. That to me is a, I don't know, a central idea of Buddhism that maybe is is fading in the United States. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, here I'm reminded of uh, Nisargadatta who put it so well. When I look inside and see that I am nothing, this wisdom... When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. I mean, that's it's it's hard to say it better than that, right? Um, Wisdom and love or wisdom and compassion, the, the two pillars of the Buddhist path, and it shows the relationship, right? When we see through the delusion of separate self and realize that we're interconnected, interdependent with everyone else, then a path of, of love and compassion isn't so much a sacrifice of one's own practice, but rather that's the form that the path takes. When we realize that we're not separate from the world, that the world is, as it were, our own body, our own being, then that path of love and compassion is, is, is how we embody or um, learn, learn to live in the way that's consistent with the enlightenment, with the... Con- consistent with the realization. And frankly, I think the kind of world we're in now um, really demands something like that. Uh, It's it's, it's scary if, uh, you know, Buddhism is reduced to mindfulness that makes us better workers or better consumers uh, when clearly we need a lot more than that.
1: Yeah, a Buddhist critique and Buddhist transformation of the whole capitalist consumerist order, it would be a really interesting thing to to be engaged with. This has been an amazingly fine conversation, David, and I wanna thank you very much for being our guest on Essential Conversations.
2: My pleasure, thanks for the invitation.
1: Our guest today was David Loy, author of A New Buddhist Path, Enlightenment, Evolution, and Ethics in a Modern World. You can learn more about David's work on his website, davidloy.org. Support for this show comes from Inner Engineering, a program to empower every human being with the tools for well-being from the distilled essence of yogic sciences. Visit www.innerengineering.com to learn more. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami, thanks for listening.